Welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids, a podcast that steps into alternative education, parenting, and living a funner, fuller family life. I'm Robin, home educator, unschooling mom to two funny, eclectic kids, and we're here to create a space for families to listen, connect, learn from others, and be inspired. Join us every two weeks to hear interviews and tips from experts in learning, education, and parenting, and stories from families that are playing full out in the arena of life and education. World schooling, unschooling, alternative schooling, homeschooling, or just creating a whole new style of learning. Is your child a reluctant writer? Do they struggle with reading? If your answer to either of these questions is yes, then Night Zookeeper may be just what you've been looking for. Night Zookeeper is an online learning program for children aged 6 to 12 years old and uses a gamified approach to help keep kids engaged and focused on developing awesome reading and writing skills, all while having fun at the same time. Some of the features we love include the educational games, the fun challenges, the personalized feedback, and the super safe community pages where children can work with each other and learn together. If Night Zookeeper sounds like the perfect learning program for your child, you can try it for free by clicking on the link in my show notes. When you register, you'll get a seven-day risk-free trial, as well as a huge 50% off of your annual subscription. That's a great deal if you ask me. You can try Night Zookeeper today and make reading and writing fantastically fun for your child. Just go to the link in my show notes. Welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids. My name is Robin Robertson, and I am the creator and host of this show, and I'm also a home-educating mom to two teenagers, so they're teenagers now. And we've been on this journey for nine years and counting, and, you know, this podcast that you're now listening to, I started this podcast because I had all those questions, I had those doubts, I had those insecurities. And I wanted answers. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to connect with the community and other parents who had experienced similar things to what I had been feeling or had been through the things that I was scared of or that I was worried about. You know, the biggest thing is I wanted to make sure or wanted to feel that this decision to live a life of learning outside of the classroom walls, I wanted to understand if it was the right one for our family, if it was a good one, and that my kids would have all the opportunities and things that they needed that other kids in school would have. And let me tell you, it's been a huge learning journey for myself, for my husband, for all of us. I think really we have, my husband and I have been the ones who have learned the most. And this podcast was created to do that, a place where we could all gather, where we could ask those questions, we could find inspiration, we could share stories, get some answers, get to know each other and feel supported, and a place where it was easy to gather and do that. So welcome to the community. If you're new to the podcast or just tuning in for the first time, I'm happy that you're here and we continue to gather and inspire each other and share stories. 
And the community has grown, support has grown. So if you're looking to connect further outside of this episode or outside of this podcast, well, I have a Patreon community, a private Patreon community, patreon.com slash honey, I'm homeschooling the kids. And within it, you can access a lot of my resources, PDFs, downloads, like my game schooling guide, homeschooling with purpose workbook. Uh, But as well, I host monthly Q&As, which are right now for the summer accessible to every level. And I know many are getting ready to begin their new journey. And so I want this conversation to be open to as many as possible. So you can go to patreon.com slash honey, I'm homeschooling the kids and join the community. And it's another great way to support this podcast and help me to continue to support you as well. We also have our Clubhouse community, which is a wonderful mobile app that allows us to gather through. It's an audio-only app that we host weekly discussions on learning, homeschooling, education, unschooling, self-directed learning. Uh, A couple times a week, we took a break in July and we'll start again in August. And I'll have all the links in my show notes as well. I also offer a small group intimate masterclass, Homeschooling with Purpose. We meet over a month, once a week to discuss and engage and inspire each other. But also specifically, I'm helping you to set up your homeschooling or unschooling journey with purpose to step into the de-schooling process, to work out those fears and uncertainties, and, and to create an impactful, connected home learning environment through natural learning. So if you're interested in that masterclass, my next one is coming up in the fall of 2022. Just email me to get on the wait list. And then also Kelly Edwards of the 90-Minute School Day and I, we have created and host a once-a-year Homeschool Summit, How to Be an Awesome Homeschooler, and that is, next one is in March 2023. So those are a few of the key things that I have going on, and of course, there's other little extras throughout the year. Just follow me on social media, Instagram or Facebook to find out more. So I'm beginning a summer series on reading, writing, and math, and these are probably three of the common big questions that I get whether families are homeschooling or unschooling. And I just wanted to be able to provide some insight, some differing points of view, uh, some resources and information to help you along in your journey. And I'll be sharing ideas, programs, things that my kids have enjoyed and why differing opinions on learning to read from natural learning and unschooling to phonics to other approaches, as well as how we can best build the joyful and connected learning environment that is really unique to our family and our children. Because as much as anything that I recommend, my hope is that you can take bits and pieces. You might not agree with everything I say. You might hardly agree with anything that I say, but I want to offer you different resources and information, and then you can pick and choose and try trial and error and find what fits best for your family, for your children. So today's episode, we are beginning with writing and creative writing, and it's with Michael Lowe. And Michael is a parent, he's an educator, and a game designer. And we had a fantastic discussion. And I loved having this discussion with him with having a background as a teacher in the classroom, especially with older students as well. But we, we had a great discussion on school, education, learning, and creativity. 
And I will let you know, there is a portion in this episode where it is visual. So my Patreon community will have access to the video interview. And then um, a little in a little bit, I will edit the clip and share it on social media. But if you're a patron, you'll be able to access that already and, and see the visual representation. And the reason why there's a visual component as well is because Michael actually as a game designer, he runs some really cool role-playing storytelling games for kids and to support them in their creative writing. So, um, so he was just showing some specific examples of that. So you will get to see that coming up very soon, but enjoy this episode. So <laughs> welcome, Michael. I have Michael Lowe joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here today, Michael. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to chat with you. Awesome. I am too. So Michael is a writing teacher and curriculum developer with over two decades of experience. He's also a tabletop game designer who designs and runs storytelling games for kids from 7 to 13 that use the inspirational, collaborative nature of role playing to get kids writing page after page for the sheer joy of it. You can find his writing classes, which are homeschool accredited, at luckoflegends.com and his print-to-play at-home monthly games and podcast at storiesrpg.com. So welcome. And actually, I'll put all of that in the show notes as well, so anyone can have easy reference and just click when they go there. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Michael, tell us a little bit more about yourself. You're an educator, you're a game designer, you're a parent as well. How have these roles come to be in your life and why are they important to you? Oof. Gosh, it's a little easier to tell the origin story than it is to tell okay. the roles and how they do that. Intersect. Yes. <laughs> I can do it either way. I mean, I thought it was almost a more challenging question. Like, okay. Um, so I've been teaching in uh, in public school classrooms for over 20 years, um, master's in secondary ed, uh, loved it, um, still do, still occasionally miss my classroom. Um, during the pandemic, when we went to digital learning uh, in LA, uh, I went into my, my uh, admin and sort of right when we were starting to close and said, look, if we're going to do this in the fall, we should really get our, our eggs together, you know, figure it out and really approach this as an opportunity to break a lot of the things that don't work in the brick and mortar setting. So let's figure out how to teach kids when they're ready to learn. Let's make smaller classes and shorter classes. Let's make project-based learning. Let's give kids more agency in deciding what they learn. Um, and I had a bunch of teachers, we were all doing this as a working group and we went to admin and said, we'd really like to do this. And mm -hmm. admin said, yeah, well, we haven't been told by the district what we're allowed to do. And of course the district waited until the last possible minute and said, we're going to do exactly what we've always done because we need to meet standards. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't in the service to the kids. And, you know, my poor admin, they were lovely people. They knew it. They would have loved to do something innovative, but they legally couldn't. Um, at the same time, I was running a, uh, a storytelling game for my son and a group of his friends, and I've been running and designing these for years. And uh, we moved online, and I started rebuilding everything in my approach to create a story game setup that would really allow the kids to explore and create together, even though they couldn't be in the same space. So I involved Google Slides, I involved uh, Google Sheets loads and loads of image boarding so the kids could create these fantasy worlds that were really well illustrated by gorgeous fantasy art. 
And eventually I started to work on, the kids started saying, can we write a little? And I said, yeah, let's go. And so they would add slides and create characters and places they wanted to travel, new mythical beasts that they wanted to encounter. And eventually I started to tie story development and their abilities in the game to however much they wrote. And this became a tutoring program that evolved into luckoflegends.com. And um, yeah, I can say more about that design, um, but I will say this, my son, when, you know, when we started this, he'd been playing with me for a long time, but he was maybe seven. Uh, I guess he was at that, that later end of six when he mm -hmm. began. And he went from a couple sentences a week to he's writing, you know, five to 10 pages a week on his own with no push for stories that he is deeply invested in and coming mm -hmm. up with worlds that he's building with his friends. And a lot of my students are now making their own games and running them for other kids and creating ones that they get their parents to play. So, you know, the real measure for any teacher of the success of an approach is if you teach them the skills they need to be able to learn on their own and they're mm -hmm. able to create, that's, that's the measurement of success. So it's been hugely rewarding for me as a parent, uh, as a teacher, and it's really um, sort of underscored a lot of my deep beliefs about education and learning uh, and, and reinforced and, them and made me see new approaches. And what are your deep beliefs around education and learning? <laughs> Let's go there. Boy. What are your deep beliefs then on education and learning? You can't learn if you don't trust. Hmm. You can't learn and won't learn if you don't feel safe. Hmm. Vulnerability and comfort with moments of uncertainty is required for learning. So you think about writing, right? Uh, a lot of my class in high school was organized around making the process of learning to write as fun and painless as possible. Right. And the reason it had to be made painless is because the format of school is uh, makes it painful. Absolutely. And kids know this, which is why kids in school will often say, oh God, I hate English class. Oh, I, I really hate writing papers. And I, I would always begin with, no, you don't. You hate, you hate the way you've been taught to write papers, and that's fine. You're, you're allowed to. You can loathe it. Um, but learning to communicate is really the process of learning to think well. If you tell me you understand something brilliantly, but you can't explain it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a few questions. Because real understanding requires that you be able to analyze exactly what's going on and explain it to someone else. So um, I do things in my class like no grades were ever given by me. Um, every single time you wanted a grade for one of your draft paragraphs, you'd come up and usually I'd say, reader, I'd say, uh, write a record and they'd put their phone on the table and say record, or they would take out a pen and paper and say, write. And then I walk through their paragraph and I'd say, okay, I think you're a little light on your, your evidence here. I feel like it's not rich enough or mm, it's not quite relevant to your point. And there were all these little check boxes where I could say, okay, it's rich, relevant, and reliable. Mm, it's not that. And same for analysis, same for claims. And by the end, I'd say, okay, so what grade do you want? And the kid would have to decide one through five. Very simple star-based system. One means either I blew it off and didn't do it, or I misunderstood it. A two meant, okay, I sort of did the bare minimum, or I had one core component that was missing. A three meant, yeah, I handled, I handled my basics, solid. A four meant, Okay, extra detail, I'm pushing it. A five meant I came up with something new, I showed real growth, 
or there was nuance in my argument that was lacking in the overall argument, new evidence, new, new details. And kids are all, almost always harder on themselves than I was. I, I was just going to say, I'm sure they were, they were harder on themselves than, than you would be. <laughs> always. Yeah. But the great part about that would be, um, I'd say, okay, great. So you know what to do now? And they'd say, yeah. And then you could resubmit that paragraph as many times as you liked. Mm. And that's what we would do is, and you know, this was in addition to choosing evidence together, kids would get to vote for every unit. Uh, it would get very political on vote days because <laughs> <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> I base everything around uh, highly engaging questions. So now in my story game classes, kids get to vote for their game setting. And if uh, and we, we, you know, it's the strong policy, the game belongs to everyone. The story <laughs> belongs to everyone, which means we all have to commit to whatever we do. So when we vote, you get to vote as many times as you like. And the only reason not to vote for a thing is if that's the one thing you don't want. Right. And then once we narrow it down to two or three options, we talk until everyone agrees. And we don't move on until that happens. And you'd be amazed at how quick kids get, you know, oh, they'll be a little back and forth, but you know, somebody like, okay, I'm ready to do Let's monster high. Let's do played, monster yeah. high. Or right. like, you know what? Okay, I can see my way to a sci-fi setting. Let's do RimWorld researchers. And, um, but the key there is, letting them have the agency to choose and right. letting them build their worlds. And so many of my games have come because, you know, kids would be like, can we take, can we take some of what we're doing in Beast Preservation Corps and mash it together with Monster High? And I'll be like, yeah. And then we'll create a new, an entirely new setting. So we're playing a, a young gods campaign right now where the kids have decided we're in the modern world and the gods are a manifestation of different emotions. Oh, wow. And they feed off of the intensity of people's emotions. And they're playing godlings, young gods, who are looking to overthrow some of the older gods because mm -hmm. they've gotten out of control. Right. And uh, and we're dealing with real issues. You know, they're dealing with yeah. questions of anger and hatred and fear and isolation. And those are given physical form in these old gods who are, are, are hunting for them. And they're looking for one of the missing gods, hope. Um, oh, wow. But, you know, it's like across the Greek mythology and Pixar's Inside Out. Or yeah, there you go. Actually, Inside for Inside Out, there's another one we got called Knights of the Microbiome, where kids play uh, tiny microbes in the body who are members of a sworn force who are committed to defending the body from harm. We've had some great games where, you know, kids fought off COVID and, you know, felt very good about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, for anyone that's listening is not, so I'm, I'm sure, is this a board game? Is this an online video game? Um, how do you, and then the, the idea of creating story and having everyone that's playing part of the story creation process. So maybe we can go back a little bit. What kind of game is this? <laughs> you know, if you gave me- Is this like a choose your own adventure or what is it? <laughs> so here's the problem. Um, a lot of people only know role-playing as Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, that's um, what Dungeons I was thinking. Dungeons and Dragons was what came to my mind, right? I One of my favorite uh, tweets about this subject was somebody said, somebody had a tweet where they had a, a friend saying, um, yeah, so I'm almost finished with my, my, um, my novel about blankety blank, blank, blank. And the, the person responded, oh, so like Harry Potter. <laughs> and the first person said, no, uh, look, I'm sorry. I said your cyberpunk RP, ask your site if your cyberpunk RPG was like D and D. <laughs> and the answer is D and D is one example of something that's a really huge, broad range of games. The core of role-playing games is just that they are about story. They're not about winning and losing. They're about a collaborative storytelling engagement. 
And very often they use dice to create randomness and excitement and that sense of wonder and even, you know, a little bit of gambling. I'm going to try this difficult thing. And, I, you know, everybody's on the edge of their seats when the dice hit the table. But um, if you, in fact, I don't know if you're comfortable. If you give me screen sharing, I can actually show you what this looks like. Um, my games I created in uh, Google Slides. They're all uh, very artfully designed and laid out to look professional. The kids learn the rules there and they build characters in a communal document. So they have a slide for their character where they describe some of their background, answer a few key questions. They have slides that they add as they build the world. So generally each class, what we do, first class, we start by voting on the setting and then asking some key questions to make that setting theirs. So uh, if we're in a science fiction future, we'll ask um, how long have your people been away from Earth? Or we'll ask, um, uh, is, is this a massive galaxy of interconnected peoples and planets, or are you the only planet you know of that has life? Um, and the kids get to answer these and slowly build this consensus about the world that they'll be in, like the Young Godlings game. Right. Um, you have screen sharing yeah. now, by the way, whenever you're- Okay, yeah. let, let me, here, let me give you a visual to go with it. So here's one of my personal favorites. This is Beast Preservation Corps. So you've got a quote from a character in it, right? Long ago, people and monsters lived in harmony, but now if we do nothing, they'll all go extinct. The Beast Preservation Corps is committed to saving every last mythical creature. So in this world, they play magical researchers, and here's a little intro to the game, who are, trying to find populations of mythical creatures who are dwindling in the wild and figure out what's wrong and how to help them. Um, they get to, there's safety tools involved, so everybody gets a chance to, uh, to say no if something upsets them. And that's one thing we work on building consensus around. And it's got all the rules in here, how to roll, and all the different peoples that you might play. And then slides for the characters. So you could be uh, a nomad. Uh, who wanders with their beast, or a scholar who's super nerdy for researching beasts. They pick one of these, they develop their character, and then they get to tell the story together. And in our first session, we focus on building the world, building the characters, and then jumping into the game and setting up uh, where they're going and what they want to do. Between games, they write. Now, there's no consequence to not writing. There's zero problem. If you don't, if you have a rough week and you don't write anything, that's absolutely fine. There's no evaluation. There's no criticism. There's zero wrong with that. But the more you write, the more story points you earn. And the more story points you earn, the more you can spend on developing your character's abilities, creating new spaces in the world, and also re-rolling dice if things go rough when there's a drama clock because that's a mechanic I use to create tension and ramp things up. Right, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so the key to this is um, they'll write, you know, I've, I've got a group of kids who's been in two weeks and they've written 150 pages um, and it's five kids uh, and they're all under the age of 13. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not doing it for credit. They're not doing it for any purpose other than the sheer joy of the story. And the cool part is because it's a collective document they get to snoop on each other in the middle of the week. So, you know, they're always reading each other's stories in the week and then riffing off each other's stories, grabbing characters. Um, a lot of my kids like to stay on after the meeting mm -hmm. to have writers groups because they'll be like, do you want to write about the such and so? And they're like, yeah, let's let's work on that together. And then they'll stay on us all. 
always get them to check with their parents and then say, okay, you guys are clear. I'll, I'll put you as host and they get to take over and, uh, and start creating more. So that's so the basic full, approach. It's full on collaboration and community in that. Yes. And so do they, um, okay. So as I impact this a little more, do they have to be part of the class in order to create the story? Can they do this individually? Are they connected? Say, is there a meetup, a scheduled meetup every week online? How does that work? Like if there's someone who's like, I want to say I'm a homeschool kid and I want to wake up Monday morning and write like from 9am until 5pm and be engaged in this, can I still do that? Or do I have to wait for everyone to be online? So uh, to run the game, everyone's online. And this is the key. Most of my sessions are two hours and I hold weekly classes during the year. And then during the summer, I hold uh, week long classes that go Monday through Friday. Although I often have them packed full of my kids who have been in my weekly classes and are just like, yeah, I don't want to leave my crew. And I'm like, it's okay. Just (laughs) sign up together. Um, but so here's an example. Um, what we'll do is in the first hour of every game after the first session, we do read alouds. So we read everyone's story aloud, clap like crazy, talk about a couple of edits that might be needed, talk about how the story elements incorporate into the larger setting. Kids will ask questions and be like, well, wait a minute, do you think that could be the guy who I mentioned in mine who was a mystery? And once we've put all of that together, we might add those to the agreement slide that says some of the lore that we decide about the world. Um, And then uh, we assign story points. And that usually takes about an hour. The second hour is where they get to play in character as their individual heroes and adventure in the world, uh, encounter dramatic situations, ramp up tension, create moments of, of, you know, epic awesome. So, yeah. That's how it's laid out. Okay. Yep. So, okay. So here's my next big question for you. Go for it. Why? <laughs> Why did you do this? What is the drive behind this? What's the purpose for you? What, where were you like, you know what, this is what I want to create and do and provide for others or for myself. What's your big why in all of this? So, um, are you an athlete by any chance? Um, yeah, I guess I play sports, but okay. yeah. The only reason I asked is um, it's the most adjacent activity to what I do mm-hmm. that most people understand. Um, every one of my high school classes, you'd have a certain, there's, there's always a batch of kids who would do absolutely no work, no matter how you begged and pleaded and worked with them and tried to help them. And then they wouldn't be able to play in a game. And all of a sudden, four months of work would get done in a week and it'd be brilliant. And it was because they were super compelled to have that experience on the field. Um, A lot of the neuroscience around learning really suggests that if you want kids to learn, it's all about dopamine and it's all about oxytocin. It's both peer reward and peer support and also the feeling of having that moment of yes, of victory, where you're like, I did the thing. And the problem is um, school, as it's built now, is a badly designed game. It doesn't work on peer excitement, peer reward, and it doesn't work on moments of pride. Mm. It's evaluative, but it feels judgmental, not celebratory. When you get a grade, you either think, gosh, I'm relieved that I didn't get the grade that, that would have been a problem for me, or you think, gosh, I must be a fool. And I must be terrible at this. And it hurts your self-esteem. 
Either way, it's a lose. I always tell, told my students in the classroom, listen, whether you get an A or an F, you have more in common than you know. I met so many A students who literally were terrified, horribly insecure, and anxious because they were worried. They'd been getting A's their entire life because they did what they were told. Yeah. But they had no pride in their skills. They had no sense of confidence. They had no agency. If you mm-hmm. asked them what they wanted to do, they'd say, I don't know. What do I need to do to get an A? Yeah. And I'd say, no, 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 no. Hold on. <laughs> this is way more fundamental and important than an A. What do you want? And they'd say, well, I don't know. What do you want? <laughs> then yeah. I'll want that's, it. Yeah. That's exactly it. And <laughs> F students, the thing is, F students realize that it's a game for points. And they realize that it's a game that means nothing to them in which they don't get rewarded and they only get punished. And so very quickly, they make a a very intelligent decision. They say, you know what? This is not worth my energy or investment, so I'm out. And you can't blame either one. Both of those are reactions to the fact that that school is this arbitrary game for points that don't have intrinsic meaning for kids. So looping back to sports, Sports uh, very often are the only arena in which kids have had the kind of transformative experience that is necessary to get a feedback loop going for learning. I'm on the field, I practice my butt off, I work really hard, and then I have this moment where I make it happen. Mm. And all my friends go nuts cheering for me, and we all feel bonded, and we're together, and gosh, I want that again. And I will work every day and I will get up at 5 a.m. to work out and I will go everywhere, drive everywhere on on the earth to get to to events because I crave that experience. So the human brain is wonderfully suited. Kids' brains are wonderfully designed to get obsessed with difficult work, but they need the right reward to get that loop going. So for me, that reward came when I was started, when I was about 11, from role-playing games. And it's one of the only places outside of sports where a similar kind of experience can occur. Um, And it's, you know, deeply rewarding. You have that moment where you roll the dice, you come up with a really good idea, you think of how to solve the problem, and everyone is ready for you to win. And they are hanging on the edge of their seats when the dice hit the table. And it's the reason I became a designer. And it's part of what shaped how I educated uh, all throughout my career. And now it's, uh, it sort of seems I really face palmed when I started doing this. Because you're you're not in the classroom anymore, just for anyone listening. And then, and Mike, this is what Michael does full time. You're, you're no longer a classroom teacher. You've stepped out of that and are doing this. Yes. I, uh, I teach full time online. Um, I tutor and I also design games and I also help consult for teachers. So just Mm -hmm. got finished, um, creating a game and helping a teacher, a classroom teacher in Illinois, run a game for a human geography classroom. Um, We created a game called Scions of the City where the kids got split into groups and got to create, first create a city based on what they understood of geography, then create the peoples and cultures living in that city. And then we, they got to create scions, these sort of role models, people who had some sort of influence or importance in the city and then had to face a a struggle that was based on their design um, and try to overcome that issue and resolve it in a positive way. Um, And so it was really that kind of experience. It bonds kids together and lets them create their own culture, but it also creates a feedback loop for academic celebration that's attached to skills. So kids learn to cheer for each other's writing. 
kids are laughing and cheering for each other's stories. And boy, I don't care what you incentivize a kid with. If that kid knows the next time you meet, people will be cheering for them because because of the story they wrote. Mm -hmm. Watch how hard they write. I don't care how unpleasant writing seemed before. All of a sudden, it's worth it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I I would like to know from your experience and background as an educator, especially Mm -hmm. as neuroscience has really evolved and we know so much more about the brain and development, human development, child development because of that, even in the last 20 years, the shift, how much more we we know now. (laughs) Why is the Institute of school, not, Mm. not keeping pace or not keeping up with what we know about how we learn, um, how we're motivated, our autonomy agency, all of these factors that go along with learning and self-directed learning and Mm -hmm. motivation, fulfillment, all of those things, you know, we were talking about if you, you know, you have to feel safe in order Mm -hmm. to learn. It's not, you can just learn. And then maybe you might feel if you, when you feel safe, you learn that connection piece. Why is there kind of a a hole? (laughs) Why is it not like what, what's going on there? What are your thoughts on that? How, how, um, how broad do you want me to go and how much time do we have? Um, I would say if, if you wanted me to give the largest scale answer, human beings are very bad at living in large scale, uh, groups. We Mm. did not evolve for it. Um, my mom's a evolutionary biologist. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that, um, she worked on is questions of environmental, um, environmental problems. Uh, climate change, uh, resource sharing, pollution. Um, the reason that we're really bad at managing these large-scale interconnected problems is for most of human history, they weren't an issue. Nothing you could do could ruin the world for your children's children. And by the same token, for most of human history, um, you didn't, I mean, we didn't read or write mm-hmm. or need to. Right. For most of human history, you mostly hung out with an extended family unit until you left to go make a family with Revise someone else. Yeah. And then you were still attached to somebody's family unit. You were still yeah. part of a larger group, but most of you were similar. So many of the problems that we struggle with, I think, as a species <laughs> come down to we're really bad at scale. Um, and education is no different. We're not very quick to adapt. It's only been, and I used to talk about this with kids, I'd say, you know, how many of you think reading and writing are kind of hard, you know, and all these hands that go up and I'd say, yeah, they are. Cause we've only been doing that for about 10,000 years. And for most of those 10,000 years, only a fraction of a percent of the world was doing those things. Right. It's so we, and yeah, absolutely. This is a brilliant, crazy, unbelievable leap in human skill and ability. It's hugely new for almost everyone. And as a result, yeah, it's really difficult. It takes a lot of practice to learn it and master it. Um, so it's absolutely appropriate that you find it difficult. Now, it's a great skill to have, and there's a million reasons you should master it because it will help you in this environment to create the kind of life you want for yourself. Um, same thing's true of education. Uh, you know, the idea that everyone should learn and that because we're all members of a society in which each of us should have some kind of control some sense to us. So we probably need some level of information to make informed decisions. That's only, you know, I'd argue a hundred years old. And even, even then 
it wasn't designed for everyone. It was designed for a very small percentage of people and only they were allowed access. Mm -hmm. So I think we're having massive growing pains and we're slow to adapt to every new problem. We generally don't deal with a problem until it becomes so terrifying and uh, immediate and desperate that if we don't take action, there's immediate consequence. Mm. So you think we're getting to that point or we've got a while to go still? Well, I don't know. That depends on the subject. With schooling, um, I wish. I, you know, I got excited. Um, This is a weird thing to say. Let me clarify. Okay. Uh, The pandemic is and continues to be a horrible um, and terrifying and just grief, grief inspiring, you know, horrible obstacle for Mm -hmm. uh, people to overcome. And it has absolutely ravaged people and exposed every flaw in our society that existed Mm -hmm. prior to the pandemic. Um, I got excited about schooling for one reason. I didn't think it was going to be good for kids, what happened, but I did think it was an opportunity to rethink structures and potentially to explode them. And I think, you know, as somebody who's been in the classroom for decades, um, there's a lot of things that need blowing up. Um, Unfortunately, I find that the social will in the United States and uh, determination necessary to affect systemic change is usually lacking Mm. um, in education. I I don't think just in the United States, I think in many, many places in the world. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it has to do with, uh, you know, I helped my one of my schools on the south side of Chicago uh, adopt the Common Core standards when they first came out. And I like the Common Core state standards. I don't like what has been done with them. But I think as North Stars for helping kids learn, they're great. They give you a good idea of some great skills to master and where kids could be at a given age. Um, But one thing they said in rolling those out was, we took a look at all these places worldwide that had really high levels of educational achievement. We looked at, um, you know, Finland, and we looked at uh, Amsterdam, we looked at North, we looked at South Korea, we looked Mm -hmm. at um, Japan. Mm -hmm. And one thing we noticed is they all had national curricula. Mm -hmm. And I, I resisted the urge to raise my hand and say, did you also notice that they were all uh, economically, ethnically, culturally, linguistically homogenous and had uh, paying jobs for teachers that were incredibly high and a level of respect and determination and to uh, maintain educational standards that was incredibly high. Mm -hmm. You know, they vote for higher taxes to fund more uh, educational outreach for kids who are greatest need and Mm -hmm. also the average kid. And of course, I I didn't say that, although, you know, the renegade in me wanted to. Right, Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, part of the reason we don't do it is uh, people think it's not their problem. And until um, people who have money and privilege have no choice but to send their kids to a public institution, I doubt very seriously that we'll see serious reform. Mm. And I think that's terrifying and sad. Mm. Um, But I also think that's the truth. Um, So (laughs) that's my honest opinion. I would love to see that uh, that revolution. And I see it every day in teachers. Mm. Teachers are the the ones who are from the inside out trying to blow things up and shift things. Yeah. Um, But very often they don't have a lot of political, monetary or um, or even social support. People like to say that they love teachers. People often say that they support teachers. But when it comes time to vote, most people aren't voting based on educational issues or needs. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And I think, you know, obviously the, the conversation in the homeschooling community is similar as well, right? And especially because the amount of homeschoolers because of the pandemic has surged. Mm-hmm. And I, what I hear from a lot of families that are, and maybe this is some of the listeners that, I, well, there's many listeners I know that have be, become homeschoolers and decide mm-hmm. to stay homeschoolers. And a lot of the feedback I get is that I never knew I had this choice. Yep. I never knew that it could be like this. I always thought it was only this way. And my mind was kind of blown of how well things worked for us or that we could shift things or that, you know, my kids could have time to dive into their interests that, you know, they could get a bit more sleep. The sleep that they need is like, they're actually well rested this week. They you know their stress (laughs) level has gone down. They're outside more, you know, those things that they needed that were limited or non-existent, they now have access to. And so it shifted the game. And I think for many parents, um, their choice to step out of mm-hmm. the system and then therefore homeschool or unschool or forest school, or, you know, there's so many layers. Yeah, of choices, absolutely. Right? And they're yeah. like, we're taking it because now we've had the chance to experience it where we never had before. Yeah. The other thing as well as, I mean, we were talking about de-schooling when we started yeah. before we pressed record, um, <laughs> that de-schooling journey, right? Yep. And sometimes for many parents, in order to really stop and reflect on those things of like learning, education, school, yeah. which I believe there's they're three separate things. They yes, actually they have are. their own definition. Absolutely. Yeah. But that they actually have to step out of it to get a chance to reflect on it. And yep. so much of that is about their own personal experiences in school, their own yep. personal experiences with learning traumatic, you know, yep. good things, bad things, their own idea of success and what it means and how that plays out for their kids. And then their own expectations that they bring in to their family and on, on, they put on their children. Yep. Right. Um, and so sometimes you need a break to kind of really stop and think, okay, what do I really want? What do I believe? What do I value? What's important to us? And for my kids, giving them the opportunity to voice that as well, like agency, you talked a lot about agency and I agree. That's a huge, like just our human existence, but for learners having that agency and that drive and motivation within that is, is huge. It's a big thing. And absolutely. And I see that like when you're talking your stories and your games that you've created, I mean, they have agency, but that spark, that interest, that encouragement and that community, it's yeah. like, it's all kind of fits together. Right. So, um, you know, it's beautiful to see. I love that. And that's what I would hope that learning is that exciting process as well. Right. Where everyone the other thing I see is they have the, the chance to voice what they oh. are excited about, what they want to create, where they can see things going. And, you know, there's, it's hard to do that when you're very scheduled, you have to yep. have things handed in in a certain time. You have to have the report cards ready by a certain time. You have to have the curriculum up to a certain, by October, by December, by March, you have to have things ready for assessments and exams for however, wherever you live, what's needed for that. You have to end the school year. You have to have your teacher hours and classroom hours in, mm-hmm. you know, all of those, the amount of, you know, different subjects, you have the time covered. There's yep. so many of those other things that you have to think about apart from just the joy of learning. Yep. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I have to say one of the many factors in choosing to, to really stay uh, independent and keep working on, on my own business had to do with the time I get to spend with my son. 
Mm. Um, I walk him to school in the morning. We pick him up when he gets out. Um, there are days when we just, you know, he'll say, can I stay home and do X, Y, Z? Sure. Mm. Um, absolutely. Um, we're very flexible in our approach. And, um, you know, you mentioned a lot of the time requirements of an educator, and that's a huge, huge thing. I realized I was spending less time with my son than I was with my students. Yeah. I, I don't think people realize how many hours teachers actually put in to their it's, full year. It's not yeah. like, oh, you've got all this vacation time. No. Teachers, you know, school starts before anyone else is in school. <laughs> you Two know, months before the, the year begins, yeah. you're already prepping. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, the other piece about the systemic stuff, um, not just the time requirements and, you know, mm -hmm. ticking all the boxes, um, it has to do with a mentality that is, um, it's really poisonous. Uh, it has to do with the idea of quantifying things. Mm -hmm. So I actually have heard an administrator use the term uh, data speak, if only we listen. And my uh, my partner. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of giggling. Yeah, the yeah. no, I, you should giggle. This is the problem: is no one started guffawing and pointing, although a lot of us were rolling our eyes. Um, you know, my partner is a PhD. She works in uh, user research for a tech company, and uh, she she laughed out loud. She spit something out when I said that, and she said, "God, I know data scientists who would would just destroy that. Like." No number means anything without analysis or context. And the problem is our entire system has been structured around the idea that if we want outcomes that we can really be proud of, we need numbers and the numbers need to go up. So it gets down to the level of, this is the granular level school funding is based on. Your school's funding will be determined by their success, the, the rate of growth you've shown in 11th grade scores on standardized tests. Now, one year's 11th grade is an entirely different batch of kids from last year's, right. but they track them as though those numbers are correlated and represent your school's success, which is a complete misunderstanding of how to analyze any kind of data. A number doesn't mean anything until you ask questions about how is it generated? What does right. it measure? How do we know it measures that? And this right. gets down to the granular level in a classroom because you will be told things like you have to produce at least three grades a week. Produce so three I'm grades supposed to, a week? Yeah, in my grade book, right? So oh, okay, okay. How do I make certain that three numbers that are reasonable, fair, and in some way give kids agency and help them track their own learning, since that's what I believe any good uh, feedback should be? should mm -hmm. say, here's how you're doing it, this skill. Mm -hmm. Here are some ways you can improve this skill. If it's mm -hmm. not for growth, it's not with purpose or with care. Um, it's not for I, growth, it's not with purpose or with care. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, so, you know, a grade should not exist in my, in my opinion, unless it gives a kid a tool for growing and learning and changing. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, then it is it is the opposite. It's something, it's a hindrance. It's an obstacle for them to overcome. Now, if you want to produce three graded assignments in a week, you almost have to create quickly, easily gradable assignments that you can give a score to. Right. Now that pushes you to do one of two things, either create massively complex rubrics kids can't understand, or that you are quick to grade with, right. or to create meaningless assignments where really you're just checking for compliance, in which case what you're doing, you know, I used to say this all the time, uh, 
sometimes you get asked questions like, as a teacher, what's your behavior management strategy? And my reply to that was always, I don't train dogs. Mm. And people would look at me and I'd say, I have relationship building strategies and culture building strategies, but I don't manage behavior because I'm not teaching them sit, stay, roll over. And I don't believe using words like that encourages the mindset you need to approach the classroom. Mm. So I was a master teacher and I I helped a bunch of, you know, I loved having kids in my room who were working on their masters because they blow your mind up and make you reevaluate everything you do. And they would come in with so many of those concepts firmly implanted because of their own educational experience, because of what they've been taught in the classroom and breaking those concepts. What does a number mean? You know, I've had colleagues hand me an assignment. That's 57 points. I said, okay, if I was a kid and I got 55 points, would you be able to tell me exactly why I lost two points? Mm. And they would say, well, and I'd say, yeah, it's subjective. This is why kids think it's a popularity contest because you made it into one, but you put points onto it. And that made you feel like you could officially say it wasn't a popularity contest. And that's unfair to the kids. And it's unfair to you. You're not doing the right job and you're not helping them. And they're feeling betrayed by you. You're setting yourself up for failure and them up for failure. Right. So there are so many concepts baked into the way in which schools get their funding. So your scores don't go up for your 11th grade. You don't get funded. Mm. And it doesn't take into account so many different things. There's, there's a million different ways in which you can cut this. And this is the problem. The system is so complex that very few people understand it well enough uh, to really make a critical analysis and say, oh, wow. There are, there are 4 million things involved in how schools are funded and run that make it almost impossible for anyone involved to actually do the work necessary to make it about learning. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and that's and, not anyone's fault at this point. It's a, you know, this yes. bureaucratic monster that's kind of forced yes. everyone to obey its requirements. Yeah, absolutely. And those formulas are constantly changing. So even yep. those that work full time in that, they're just trying to keep up with that as well, too, instead of forward look, forward thinking on, on how to make things better and meaningful and everything that goes along with that as well. So, yeah. Okay. So it's one of those <laughs> conversations where we could talk forever on that and, and go down that, you know, one of those rabbit holes as well, too. But I, I also want to, you know, get back to the appreciation of, um, you know, the story as well, mm. right? And the power of story. And I think you would be great to talk about this. I, I, I see our time and I want to be mindful of our time as well. But, and one of the reasons I just want to shift this a little bit is for parents that are listening. And, mm. you know, I'd asked you this a little earlier as well. Um, I so often get the questions of, because we unschool, we've unschooled for years. So our home does not look like a traditional school classroom whatsoever right, right? It, it, right it it doesn't um we don't and my my kids are very self-directed they're very you know they're very two different people two different yep, personalities yep. so what they ask and require and want is very different um but our goal my husband and I want to honor that and support them in that right yep. but so I often so often get like but how if they're not doing their grammar, how do you know they're actually learning grammar? If they are not, you know, if they're not in that worksheet or that language arts curriculum textbook, then how do you know they're learning what they have to learn, what they need to learn? How are they not behind? Or aren't you worried that they're ahead or be, or whatever, or, or, or behind their other peers? Yeah. Um, my answer is no, I'm not worried about any of that. 
exactly. but um, but from your experiences, I know part of you know the beauty of games is it mm-hmm. incorporates so much of that the storytelling, the narrative, and, and so much of language arts and literacy is that communication, telling our story, hearing others through, understanding that. Um, you know, the comprehension of our world and so many yes. facets as well, right? Could you maybe give some examples of how parents can see learning outside of the checklists and worksheets within that context? And whether it's through games, role play, what you're, you're creating in other ways that they can just kind of start shifting their perspective. Yeah. So, you know, as an educator, I do still believe in qualitative feedback being crucial. Um, if you can't accept feedback or get the opportunity for it, it's very hard to gauge your own growth and feel proud of it. And it's also hard to adjust things. You know, one of the most important lessons any kid can learn is how to listen to what they're doing and figure out what they're doing and gauge how successful am I? Okay, right. what do I want to work on? Right. And in this case, um, so I'll use the, the games that I run as an example. Um, some of my favorite things to teach. If you write two to three pages a week, I'm going to know all your grammar problems. Mm-hmm. I'm going to teach you that a semicolon is more like a committed relationship and a comma conjunction is more like a dependent relationship. <laughs> um, one can stand on its own and the other one really needs the support. Um, I'm going to teach you why tabs matter because at the beginning of a paragraph, it's hard to know where the pause comes. I'm going to explain to you how to use and when to use commas, right? Anytime you use but, did you know you need a comma? Because it's like mm. two cheeks on a butt. Um, you'd be awkward. I haven't heard that one yet. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> mine. You know, if you only have one, you're going to sit awkward. It's going to be real uncomfortable. Um, I use a lot of tricks like those, and that's for the grammar. Um, depending on where a kid is, we're also talking about things like, let's talk about different verbs than said. You're using dialogue. You can describe what the character does right after what they said. He crossed his arms and frowned. I blah, 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 blah. That's a great way to express more about the character and deepen characterization without having to repeat the verb. So you've given yourself lightness and variety in your fictional approach. In all of my games, kids are not only getting that kind of feedback and also learning to uh, lay out slides, learning to read aloud and present, learning to think critically and collaborate with their friends and dealing with challenging situations and awkward situations. Mm -hmm. And one thing you should know about my games, uh, another reason I hate comparing them with Dungeons and Dragons, is my games are entirely nonviolent. Right. Um, so I remember, uh, yeah, I remember that. That's right. It's pretty crucial to me that if you want to raise kids for a world that doesn't depend on violence, you you teach them that there are always better answers. Um, a lot of our fiction centers around a heroic myth that usually involves male, white men. Uh, hurting each other as a way to personify what scares us and then remove it. And what I've noticed in games with kids is they're much more, uh, it's it's much more difficult and there's a lot more resilience built and critical thinking built when they have to deal with things like, gosh, this makes me awkward or uncomfortable. And now I have to figure out what to do about it and I can't just hit it. Mm. And that's uh, encouraging that kind of emotional resilience is huge. But so in addition to all these things, the layout, the presentation, the speaking, the critical thinking, the collaborative stuff, and the editing, the, the rewriting, and all of the longer narrative skills, I offer a five standard breakdown for all of my parents that very specifically uses evidence for their, from their portfolios to say, okay, 
their grammar, they're struggling with this and this. They really had some growth here. A couple of things they want to work on are this and this. For presentation, they really leveled up this time. Here's how. For speaking, they still struggled with these types of situations, but they did great in this. The key is that understanding how someone learns requires you to really watch them learn and understand what they're learning and be engaged with their learning. And as a teacher, that's my job. I've been doing this for a long time. You give me a kid for a five-week course, a six-week course, I can tell you all about how they are as a writer because I have a volume of writing to work from and I can tell you all the different discussions and give you a clear picture of where they are and what they need to do to learn next. And that's what feedback ultimately should be, right? It's the ability to grow and to understand what that growth means. So for the kids, in terms of agency, um, usually I give one to three story points for any, any writing. You did one sentence, you'll get one story point. You did you know, two pages, you'll get two. You did three plus, you'll get three. Um, and then I usually assign each week a challenge point. And the challenge point always has to do with what each student is struggling with. So if we've got a kid who is scared to read aloud, I'll say, okay, next time your bonus point comes if you read your story aloud. And the kid will be like, oh, we'll do it for the bonus point. <laughs> kids, will, kids will sweat bullets for extra that they will never do for uh, this will always be evaluated. If it's gravy or icing, they're in. Right. Um, so, uh, and the challenge point has been a huge element in helping kids work with things that otherwise they would stubbornly avoid. And then having all the rest of them cheer when they get the extra bonus point. And then the collaborative element of they loan each other story points. So if you have a a light Mm -hmm. week, right? You didn't write anything. uh, And then you get into a moment of high tension and you roll and you fail and you need story points for a re-roll. Somebody on your crew who's been writing a lot is going to be like, I got you. Hold on. I'll get two story points. Take my two story points. Re-roll. And boy, you watch how hard that kid will work to make up the gap and pay those story points back because they're a member of a crew and they feel supported and seen. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a, it's a whole network of different approaches. This is why I say school is a badly designed game because there are a lot of elements of ritual and design to story and game and creativity. And if you think about how they interact, you can build a system that makes it easier for kids to do what they naturally want to. Kids don't need to be told how to play a story game. You leave a couple of kids alone in a room. Somebody's like, I'm a dragon. The other person's like, I'm going to chase you because I'm a jet. And boom, there's a story happening. It's adults. Leave them alone and watch it. Yes. Yes. And they're brilliant at it. And they're great at creating games too. If you watch kids, they very carefully structure ways to interact. You know, they'll start with that game. Mm -hmm. And then somebody will be like, wait, but not if I'm over here. If I'm over here, you can't get me. Okay, new rule just got introduced. Whole play structure gets restructured. The other guys, okay, well then I'm going to do this so that you have to get out of your corner. You have to get the such and so. I'm going to throw it over there. Ready? I'll close my eyes and count to 10. And if you aren't back in your safe zone, I'll get you. They've already created a series of interactions and they're negotiating about how the rules work to try to create a fun, transformative, creative experience. All the role-playing games and storytelling games are when they're done well is a series of rituals and tools that help people build their own collaborative creative experiences. And speaking back of neuroscience, there's some really cool stuff. I have a blog on uh, on localegends.com about this. Um, They've actually shown that imaginary experiences can have as much effect on neural architecture as real Mm -hmm. ones. Yes. 
which is huge. And I mean, of course, anyone who's been deeply immersed in a book and had it change their life already knows this. But story games are so much more accessible than great literature early on. Kids, kids who get obsessed with reading, everyone loves a good story. Once you've gotten over the difficulty of decoding and then becoming fluent and hearing the voice in your head, then you can be fully immersed. These story games bridge the gap between that kind of reading experience and the, the absolutely immersed experience of being in the book and having the world fall away. And they also let kids choose their own experiences. Right. So it doesn't have it's to be the perfect book at the perfect time because they're writing the book and they're the protagonist. You know, I have kids who struggled with anger management and they choose to play a very ferocious character and then have to have a moment of vulnerability where they realize that they are scaring people or that they, they have to protect someone mm -hmm. and, and doing so means calming down and taking care. Um, right. I've had kids who struggle with speaking up, who choose to play characters who are very socially extroverted and experiment with that different identity and break down a lot of the barriers they, that were there before. So there's huge transformative work being done in story games. A lot of them are being used right now in therapy, but what I'm doing using it for academic purposes is relatively new and I can't imagine why it seems, I still can't understand why I didn't figure this out a long time ago. So. You know, it, it's, um, well, that's what I actually thought of it. It's a way of reclaiming and rewriting your own personal narrative and mm -hmm. the whole reframing your wording vocabulary, all of that, really the practice of, you know, psychology and, um, you know, family systems in that way that reminds me so much of that, right? And and there's so many, I know, practices that do that and incorporate that and basically mm -hmm. to kind of rewrite your story so that you can move forward in a positive way. And that's already naturally playing out in that. It also made me think, have you ever read Peter Gray, Dr. Peter Gray? Free no, to Learn? I have not. Oh, I have not. Uh, it's, you know, he talks about um, exactly what you were, how, you know, the power of play, free, mm -hmm. unstructured play, like not yep. adults structuring it, us not interfering and yep. how kids create and learn within our society by doing all of those things like mixed age, yeah. mixed age groupings where kids, mm, you know, young so kids, old kids, yes. Yeah. And so how they, important. they create, they rework, they remodel, like all, all of those stages that really they're living their life out in play in so many, yeah. and they're doing all those necessary things they need to do for emotional learning and stability, physical learning and stability, mental, yep. everything is all there yep. in free play, but he's actually been on my podcast. Oh, wow. This book is one of the ones I always keep actually on my, I always have it like tabbed and cornered and all that sort of stuff. So it's a great I always book. used to tell my students, you know, that you, you know, it's not, it's not love until I see that it's covered in writing. If I, <laughs> yeah. if I see a book on your shelf and it, you haven't shown it, you haven't really gotten to yeah, know that book so true. until yeah. you've really talked with it and so sat true. down. Yeah. yeah. I love my Kindle, but yeah, no difference. Like I, you know, there are books where I'm like, Oh, I'm just going to have to order. Cause I so want to write in the margin. I want to well, make it's rewriting your own story. I mean, it's yeah. the agency. I feel like writing in a book is a big first step for a lot of kids because it's the understanding that this is not a static object that must right. be perfect and crystallized and you know pure and is separate from the self. This is my conversation with ideas that are different and challenge me and make me think and make me grow. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, really cool therapeutic work being done with role-playing games yeah. and uh, academic skills 
are absolutely um, something you can access with role-playing games, but designing for the purpose of helping kids practice academic skills is something that's very new. So I know a few people who are doing PhD research on it. Um, a lot of colleagues, I have a Discord server for educators in RPGs, and we're a, a very, uh, it's become a very nerdy and um, delightful place to be because so many people are doing such cool research that I'm always getting on there and being like, oh my gosh, did you read this article? And we, yeah. But, uh, but the potential there for giving kids the tools to connect longer stories, that's the piece. Because kids will tell stories and free play is amazing. But how do you encourage them to create those longer and more immersive narratives where the character's transformation, they get to explore it over a course of weeks and months, mm. where their writing gets to deepen as they understand all the different people they've created and imagine themselves not just as their one character, but put themselves in the shoes of other people who are involved in the story, sometimes right. people who are perceived as villainous or who are, are complex or mysterious. There's a lot you can do. I mean, we access social justice work, a lot of understanding of uh, what it means to be to honor people who are different from you. Mm -hmm. So in Rim Worlds, we have, uh, you know, there's there's we build into the language. Um, if you call someone in, politely, it's otherworlder. You would never use the term alien. Um, if you want to be honorific, you use the word descendant because mm -hmm. the the myth of that world is everyone is descended from an ancient progenitor people who moved throughout the galaxy. And there's some tie in our ancestry between all of us, no matter if I'm a tentacled squid and you are a robot. Um, <laughs> all of those being characters I've had all in my connected. games were amazing. Yes. <laughs> So, but, uh, but you can really explore so many topics, so much content, so much history, you know, in Knights of the Microbiome, we, you know, kids have to research physiology to describe what it would be like if we Inside visited the body, right? If we visited the metropolis of the gut where yeah. all microbes live and yeah, yeah lots of, poop maybe, jokes it made me think of uh, magic school bus that one episode where they, Miss Frizzle has them go inside their body. And I mean, my kids are oh, big, big magic school, Miss Frizzle fans and all How that. How can sort you of not stuff, be? So. She's the yes. ultimate educator. She's, awesome. she's the teacher yeah. we all want to be when we grow up. Oh oh. Yeah. When you're telling, we we're talking about that. That's what was playing through my mind was that. So I love it. Okay. Thank you so much, Michael. Could, could you uh, leave, let us know where we can connect with you, where we can find your games, all of, all of, I'll have it in the show notes, but if you could just let us know now where we sure. can find more. Yeah. So luckoflegends.com is my site for finding my classes, signing up for classes, you can ask me questions. Uh, feel free to email me at michael at luckoflegends.com. You can find uh, my play at home games, which come with an, uh, a podcast, actually, from Stories Podcast, which is the largest and longest running kids pod on uh, on the web. I Really? I, I could, yeah. That's a my, my son grew up on this when he was little, and uh, I got to work with its creator to create Stories RPG. And now we work together to create a series of podcasts that are on Stories Pod. I actually have a I have a podcast coming out this week. A story I wrote for one of my games is on the pod. Um, awesome. Sorry, very nerdy, excited thing for oh, me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, celebrate it. Definitely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was, yeah, I mean, like, it was funny when I met the guy. I was like, are you kidding me? We grew up on Dog King. I can sing all the songs <laughs> from your show. Um, but yeah, so luckoflegends.com. That's my blog. That's my classes. 
storiesrpg.com. That's the play at home, fully illustrated coloring book illustrations, play to learn. You don't have to know anything about role-playing games. Just pick it up. It'll tell you what to do. Um, and then if you would uh, like to check out some of my other games, including some slide deck games for learning, you can check me out at luckoflegends.itch.io. That's a online marketplace for oh, okay. I don't have that one. Okay. I have so many links. I don't know how to even, even begin to put them all in the same place. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, and I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm really excited to get a chance to connect with, um, with homeschool audiences because for me, this has been an amazing win as a parent. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's just the kind of thing I hope I can I can get into more people's hands because it works. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, let's let's help you do that. So, <laughs> okay. So I will include all of those links. Uh, the one thing I'm just going to note for anyone that's mm. listening right now, the, what uh, Michael showed on video, we screen shared. So what I will do is my patrons will have access to the video, um, mm-hmm. Patreon, patron uh, on Patreon. So honey, I'm homeschooling the kids, patreon.com slash honey, I'm homeschooling the kids. And I will, I can include the video in my newsletter as well. If anyone wants wow. to see the layout, um, it, cause I know otherwise they're listening on Spotify or iTunes in that mm-hmm. way. Um, so if you have, are not able to access it, just email me. And I will make sure you receive it if you want to see, see all of that. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I will be in touch soon. (laughs) Totally (laughs) my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And remember, if Night Zookeeper sounds like the perfect learning program for your child, you can try it for free by clicking on the link in my show notes. And when you register, you'll get a seven-day risk-free trial, as well as a huge 50% off your annual subscription. That's a great deal. So try Night Zookeeper today and make reading and writing fantastically fun for your child. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, leave a review or comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, and reflections on the episode. You can go to the website, imhomeschooling.com, or email me directly, robin at imhomeschooling.com. 